0: A warm welcome to the Herdy School. Hertie School. The Hertie
1: School. The
2: Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow.
1: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School in Berlin.
3: Good afternoon, very warm welcome. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to our event on the next stage of digital government services and what we can learn from the Estonian experiences on digital transformation. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome today Sim Sickert with us. I will introduce him in a moment. And it's really great that you are here with us. And it's also fantastic that you also all that you all were able to join us in times of Corona. I mean, we had a lot of discussion. Can we even organize this event? And, and but we are very glad that you are all with us here. We have some precautionary measures, but. We now hope for a wonderful discussion. And thanks for joining us for this debate. My name is Gerd Hammerschmidt. I am director of the new Center for Digital Governance we have just established at the Hertie School of Governance. Um, and um, we have established this center because we think as a Hertie school, a public policy school, we need to increase, strengthen our visibility in what we regard as the most cruel or one of the most um, fundamental um, challenges governments and um, policymakers face today, which is digital transformation. Digital transformation now is really expanding in all affects all sectors, all um, affects all areas of social life. And there's real a substantial in potential to improve well-being, common good in nearly all areas, but at the same time it also raises a lot of fundamental questions about the role of the state, how governments um, should play a role, um, the need for certain um, um, regulations, certain ethical standards. So this is exactly why we are here, why we are doing the research here at the Hertie School. And we also want to strengthen public debate on exciting topics we see in this field. And a good and very current example currently is this coronavirus. I mean, we have recently read um, that China was really successfully able to manage the corona with AI, big data, um, um, this kind of tracking, hundreds of millions of smartphones. This was a successful case of implementing um, um, or using AI for the public good in Germany. On the other side, I mean the head of the Robert Koch Institute just last week suggested a similar step, and that was an outcry. So we see there are very different kind of context of digitalization, um, regulatory demands, um, ethical concerns, and this is exactly what we want to focus on in our our center. Brings it back to the topic today, the future of digital government and the next steps in improving digital public services with the use of AI. There are obviously a lot of countries which are really leading this development. China is one of these countries often mentioned. It's Singapore, it's um, 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 Finland, Denmark, but clearly one of the most interesting, exciting countries we are cases is Estonia, Um, since its independence from Soviet Union in nineteen ninety one. I mean. uh, Estonia really has turned in one of the most advanced digital societies in the, throughout the world, with successfully implementing digital services in nearly all areas you can think about, and not nearly all domains of public administration. Estonia has been described as digital society, an e-government powerhouse, digital leader of Europe. I mean, they are always on top on the rankings with regard to digital government services in Europe. So it's really worthwhile to take a close look at what is um, 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 done in in or what, what developments we see in Estonia, because you're really leading the way. There is this ministerial declaration, the Tallinn Declaration on e-government, which really set the direction for e-government in Europe. And now you are going the next step with these AI-supported digital services. And this is exactly why we are curious to hear what's going on in, in Estonia, what your experiences are. And these developments are also at the heart of what we are doing research at the Hertie School. Last autumn, just a little bit of marketing, we have finished a report for the German uh, German parliament, Bundestag, on the potentials of, of um, AI, DLT in government, and how these kind of technologies, what international experiences are, and what can we learn for the German public administration. We are currently involved in a EU. Um, EU-funded international research project on how collaboration, digitalization can lead to government transformation. And in both projects, a key key, key finding was, I mean, the most interesting developments are coming from Estonia. So a lot of interesting insights are from Estonia, and we are eager to hear more about this and uh, more about the Estonian um, experiences. And there is no better to share these experiences with us then simsikot and i'm very grateful that we can welcome you here today with us you're probably the person most experienced in this area for many years simsikot has really been at the heart and driving these developments of digitalization digital government digital society in estonia i mean you will mention I'm sure a lot of these points. um, You first have been digital advisor to the um, 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 government office of Estonia. And since 2017, you are now the CIO of the Estonian government and the deputy secretary-general for IT. Um, You are um, leading Estonia's central policy team for innovation uh, uh, and national cybersecurity in your task. And I think that's something that is very interesting for us in Germany, the whole of government coordination of digitalization in a country. So how do you coordinate digital strategies implementation throughout the whole whole of government um, context? You're also the chairman of the National Task Force on AI. So you're as an AI expert. You are the chairman of the OECD working party of senior digital government officials. And in 2018, 2019, Sim was nominated by our political as one of the world's top 20 most influential um, people in digital government. So it's really fantastic that you're here with us. And um, also looked up a little bit before, you have studied at renowned universities, unfortunately not at the Hurti School, but Princeton um, University of London, Stanford, and spent also several years. And I think that's also very, very positive in the Ministry of Finance working on budgetary topics. I think this combination of digital and budget, something we should not overlook. This is have an understanding for the budgetary logic of public sector, and this is also a recommendation to our students. This is core of what you need to understand, also in the area of digitalization. Um, And now, and it's also not the first time, that's the last point, that you're here with us. I mean, Sim already was here with us in an Executive Master Course 2015. So, you are not new to us, but it's really fantastic that you're here, that you're back here with us. And the idea of this event is I mean, we want to have a debate, a discussion. We have asked um, Sim for a short presentation, somehow to get us a little bit of a glimpse on what's going on in Estonia, 20 minutes, and then we directly want to move into a debate discussion with you, questions, um, um, concerns, comments. This is exactly, it should be a dynamic kind of event. We are looking forward and we also have some cautionary measures. So there will be not a mobile microphone today. We have two microphones on each side. So if you want to sh- join the debate, either you raise up your voice or you join one of the microphones so that we can have the, a good debate going on. OK. By that, I want to finish my introduction. Sim, it's fantastic that you're back here with us. And the floor is yours. We are eager to your presentation.
1: Thank you. Tere, that is, hello in Estonians, we get. Gerhard messed the uh, computer up, so let me just fix it real quick. (laughs) I know that uh, software, yes, two different things. All right, let's get it going. Look, um, I think as Estonians, we are always very humbled by uh, praises like you just heard. So I'm sorry you had to endure that. Um and this is really for the reasons that especially for my sake uh, like Gerhard mentioned I have had the luck and luxury of being the uh, government CIO for the last three years so basically the things we are talking about here in a very short nutshell and, and sharing with you look it's 20 years of work in half an hour right or, or two hours so there's many giants on, on whose shoulders I get to stand on but it's always good to be back at early school um, it's been a while like, like Gerhard said but uh, congrats on the centre of digital governance as well it's been an amazement for me why so few public governance schools take up digital topics so it's great that actually sort of more sort of joining the ranks and really taking this up because obviously I'm biased right so uh, in many ways these are at the centre of all things that governments do because nothing these days runs without digital tech right so it's exactly we have to think very consciously and, and learn and study and, and teach these these issues so but let's see if we can get this back up Uh, You did something very weird, Gerhard. (laughs) All right. Just one sec. Rebooting. And we should be go. Good. In Estonia, we have a saying about this. We can be the world's whatever best in all things software, but the devices always come from somewhere else. So you can always blame them for some reason. All right. Good, we're back. So um, what else... Briefly speak about, how many of you have been to Estonia before? All right, quite a few. How many have heard about Estonia? (laughs) Or I mean, if I was really cheesy, I would ask how many of you use Skype, right? So any Skype users? All right, you're fans of Estonia, see? Built in Estonia. Look. if there are bits and pieces you have already heard, I'm sorry. So just briefly, just make sure we're all on the same page. I'll say a bit about the past and then I'll say exactly like I was asked about what are the next things we're building on. And AI is very central there. So it's not just AI, but, but clearly we see a lot of uh, use in that. But long story short, um, we have been on the path of digital transformation of our government for the last 20 or so years. The reasons why is that we are small and we used to be poor. <laughs> If I just somehow sum it up, that was our way of becoming really a country and delivering services, and and still is delivering services to the level that our people expect in terms of welfare, having the defense, the whole thing. That's a way to be efficient. That has been driving us. That's been our burning platform. We couldn't be the country we are otherwise. And um, if we just jump forward 20 years where we stand today in terms of this, clearly digitization has... um, penetrated all fields of life, all fields of services. So from user point of view, from citizen point of view, what it means really is that if you're an Estonian, there's only very few times where you have to show up somewhere. So basically almost everything you need to do, the bureaucracy you have to handle, you can do yourself online wherever you are in the world. So only few times are a few things we consider very risky, like you getting married. So we want to make sure you really know what you're doing. So you still have to see somebody for that. Legally speaking, sorry, I take all the romance away. Legally speaking, this is some of the most consequential thing you will do contractually in your life, is marriage, divorce as well. So, um, or real estate, buying and selling real estate. Another thing you have to show up for. But if you want to go home with a paper contract, you have to pay for it. So basically, all the things around that happen still digitally. Marriage, the same way. If you want to get a certificate, you have to get it extra printed out. Marriage is just an entry in a registry, but you have to be there for that act because we want to make sure you're voluntarily, like I said, doing this and sane as well. So, everything else you can imagine, any other times and places you come across the government as an entrepreneur, as a citizen, there's a digital option for that. We haven't made things mandatory online, mind you, uh, except for enterprises. So for enterprises, you're up and running, stuff happens digitally for you, no other option. We don't accept, let's say, reports on paper. Citizens, paper options are there. But they are quite so rarely used only. So we have, for example, tax uh, returns, 96% come online. So I mean, oftentimes the usage level is very high, but the option on paper exists. But fundamentally, yes, entrepreneurs, like I said before, handle all the stuff digitally. So from the point of starting a company to running it, all the red tape is, is there. It's been a very much contributing to our business environment. It's been one of the factors, one among others, the, why there are so many startups. It's so easy to launch a company and, and start growing it. These days we even sort of make this sort of company services globally available. So uh, every one of you can apply and become virtually Estonian. We run a program that's called e-residency. So you don't get physical residency, you don't get a student citizenship, but you get our digital identity. And with that you can set up a company, you can run it from Germany or wherever you are in the world, and still be fully legit in European Union single market. So these days we attract every week more virtual residents than there are babies born in the country. So we grow in a digital space as an economy faster than we do in some sense in, uh, in actual physical, classical space, right? And uh, these guys pay taxes, so basically exactly to the revenue of the country, it's, it's beyond efficiency these days for us. But also if I just very briefly sum up from people's point of view, like it's not just bureaucracy, it's also we try to look at how can we use digital technology to make several core sectors of Public service better, for example, to deliver better health because we have health da- data available, or to make it uh, make the whole health system run more efficiently from people's point of view, or also from practitioners' point of view if the digital prescriptions. Uh, by the way, on that, Davi, you want to stand up? You might want to remember this face. So, that's the Estonian guy who's changing German healthcare right now, bringing some of this stuff to Germany from starting from Hessen. So uh, we're happy to share, but okay, so health, education, stuff like that, and we've gone beyond, we've gone to services where, where it's not about bureaucracy anymore, where we see that digital options offer you a convenient way to get your things done. So the example I have here is voting. You can vote on paper still as well, but half the people do it online. So for parliament, for European parliament, whatever. You can be in the beach in Fiji, you can be stuck here in Berlin or wherever, or it's no random picture. You can just be... There can be a blizzard outside. Elections for parliament are the first Sunday of a march in Estonia. The weather can suck. So who goes to out to vote? Not so many people really want to. So you can be in the comfort of your home or office and still cast your vote for parliament. That's a convenience measure. But it's basically exactly... It has allowed us to make the service, if we can call voting a service, still accessible for everyone, wherever they happen to be. Now... It's all been built on a few premises. I'll be very brief here. So what has really driven us to this point is that we stumbled upon an approach of platform, government as a platform very early on. These days it's a buzzword. It's a a very big term. It's a very big movement. We never use it like that. For us it was practical. We We needed to economize how we go digital. So we looked, hey, what are the functionalities that all different ministries, agencies, parts of government need to make their services digital? Authentication. How to trust your users? One of them, hey, why don't we have a shared solution? Or another option. And that's, again, what uh, Tavi what and others have been trying out in Hessen and otherwise, data sharing. We need to push and pull data. We need to securely exchange data between parts of government to serve people in a seamless way, in an integrated way. So perhaps let's have a common solution for that. And that became X-Road, which is not uh, Estonian, by the way, anymore. It's a Nordic solution. We have Finland using it, Iceland using it, others joining up. So these platforms have made it easier, faster, cheaper to go online and go securely online all across the government and even in the private sector. Most of use case for identities in private sector, uh, business to business contracts being signed digitally, stuff like that. So, so these are platforms that have been a very big part of our story. If I look ahead and I come to, really to the, the core of our topic today... There's quite a few things we're working on, but two that perhaps uh, matter the most from our point of view. That, so where do we go from here? As I said before, for us, almost everything you need to do, or we want to do with the government, you can do online. But the user experience has been often quite crappy, because we haven't been really good at, in terms of user centricity. I'll be very honest here. This has been one of the biggest failures. We've been good from engineering point of view, putting things online, making them work technically wonderfully but uh, not easy to use. So our thinking, my thinking has been, that: hey, if we have to change that, why don't we take only a small step in terms of improving, let's say, for the better interface? Let's just redesign services away. Let's design away the need to have an interaction with the government if we can. So basically, it's the same type of t- time we will put anyway. If we spend eight hours designing a better interface, or so eight hours of designing a service away, which is a better outcome, Right. So the examples being, um, and we are really leading this from um, the point of view of life events. It's probably no news, many governments have, sort of have this concept that <clears throat> most of our needs to interact with the government, so most of the digital services, or, or any public services for that matter that exist, are to handle some bureaucracy around certain life events. Your child is born, for example. There are four or five things you will do, or we will do. I've done it a few times myself. Um, in the package. And then I may not come across the government for the whole next year again. Unless something, for example, next big thing happens for, with me or, or my family. So most people, on average, interact with the government, in Estonia at least, three times a year. That's very minimum, actually. Um, but do these three times have to happen? So I take, if I take the example of uh, children being born, then uh, we, we are on a mission that around each and every life event... There should be one, perhaps two, the most, if, if that's a user need, interactions, and that's it. So if my child is born, currently, I can get everything done from the hospital before I leave with the baby the next day. So name the baby, some th- two, three benefits I will apply for, put the kid in a kindergarten queue. That's a special Estonian thing, Italian thing. Um, you have to line up for... So... Um, it's just not its just it doesn't exist for the rest of estonia it's It's very local. So um, these are five interactions I can do in different online sites, places myself right now today. But fundamentally, we know as a government that the baby was born, and that's no big brother scenario. We know it because hospital has made an entry to population registry, registering the kid, because birth is a medical condition. The kid's medical history electronically immediately starts. So we know that the baby was born, and we know at least the mother, because that connection is made at the, int- at the point of registering the child. So we can, why do we wait for you to come to us to say, hey, government, can I please name my baby Seam? Can I please have this benefit that I'm entitled to? We could send you an email and say, thank you for the new citizen. And in that email, we direct you to basically give us the only bits of data that we ask in four or five different interactions. We can, we can ask, what's the name? What account do you want the money to be sent to? Because that's a choice you can make, right? But we shouldn't be asking, do you want the money? Everybody wants the money. <laughs> we know for a fact that everybody will apply. Why do we make you apply? Crazy, at least from my point of view. Um, and so... Based on your residence, we can offer you the, you know, the three uh, nearest kindergartens with the smallest uh, queue. So do you want to register to them? So basically, we can turn it around, make it proactive, and in one interaction, you get your thing done. And this is exactly what we're building up now, service by service, event by event. We started with the uh, creation of companies already. And so the whole idea is that so let's get rid of the unnecessary interactions, because the ultimate best user experience when there's none, stuff happens at the right time for me anyways. And we don't need big data for that. We don't need AI for that. This is service design. This is combining services into seamless interaction across government silos, sometimes across levels, so municipalities and and central government. And um, we're not just talking, like I said, this is in Estonian only, but for example, already today we have parts of it. We don't build it in one big chunk. We build it part by part. So for example, for babies, we already have this, that if a new child is born, the parents get the... uh, they don't have to apply for uh, maternity leave benefit. They get a proposal, like an offer, from the government agency. They say yes or no, and you know they they can just go ahead with it. So, step by step, we're making it proactive and happen in the background. I'll skip one. Now, as I said before, this doesn't have to mean AI and all the sort of you know big strong stuff. But of course, AI stuff, artificial intelligence can take it to the next level and way beyond, can make the services happen more invisibly, more proactively, even in a much wider scale. And, and also in the back office, I just talked about the you know, front office in, uh, interaction so far. We are very strong believers in artificial intelligence in Estonia. Why? The same thing that I said at the very beginning. What has been driving us to be digital is efficiency. How to pull, how to pull off being a country without having too many people, not too many natural resources, governments that want to have low taxes, the whole thing. How how to do that? You have to find ways how to basically constantly uh, automate or, or, you know, get rid of the redundancy in processes. So AI for us is is the next great tool for that. We clearly believe in this. And also, um, we also have a very particular view when it comes to issues around like the usual risks of AI, when people say, for example, there will be um, you know, people left on um, un- public sector unemployment, people left, you know, left out of the job. In Estonia, our number one problem is that we are shrinking and aging. So anyone we can spare whose labor basically age, you know, uh, and, you know, move to a more high value job, Perfect. Yes, there's a reskilling issue. Yes, that we have to, you know, meet the, solve the mismatch between uh, jobs and, and, and education. But fundamentally, it's a good thing. So that's why we're banking on AI so much, at least in government. And um, we had, this is just for background, we had the national strategy come out last year. But even before the strategy, we were already working on stuff. So if we just highlight it with one example, in the interest of time, then um, we really see very concrete fruits, very many low-hanging fruits we can pick, even with the current Today's state of technological development of AI. We're not talking here about general AI, like so stuff that works as a human. We talk about here concrete, specific, narrow machine learning applications that bring us productivity already. So the example I have here is from um, the agriculture field, for example. Um, our agriculture agency that gives up subsidies, grants, so they used to they also how to make sure that the grants go are used for their proper reason. So they had to do some inspections. How do you classically do inspections? <laughs> you figure out somehow. You have risk models about okay, how do I? Which sort of you know where do I send my inspectors to in, investigate? You somehow try to see cover the whole of the country of Estonia. Um, basically, in the ten or so more years, we had zero fines being issued. So we thought, but hey, or these guys thought that hey, can we do it differently? So sorry, I just jumped a bit. Um, Instead of sending inspectors out blindly, but perhaps we can use some other sort of basis of data and well, look, we have satellite imagery of the whole country constantly being updated and that's one great benefit of the European Union, for example. Um, we have all of this data, can we train the machines to, to figure out, hey, for example, where have been changes happening on landscape, is grass being cut, is, you know, is the land being cultivated? So they trained the machines to, the computers to understand in that sense. So basically how to recognize from comparing images if changes are happening. And now they had targeted inspections based on that. If no change was happening, that was promised basically as a, as a condition of a grant. Now they start sending, sorry, thinking on its own. Um, now they're sending targeted inspections in. In three months, the system paid itself back Right. by efficiency that we got from uh, you know, less inspectors all the way to basically now we had targeted understanding where to really sort of whom to fine, for example. And this sounds perhaps scary. It's a fining scenario. It's basically, that, again, the government wants to get more money in. But it's a, another good example of where we waste our resources for blind inspections. And these inspections are there anyway. Now they work better at least. But we have other examples. This is, we are currently have about 25 or so use cases live throughout different parts of government. My own best example is something we are now building up. Um, you all have um, cell, phone, uh, cell, sorry, uh, cell phones. The, your phone, at least in English, it can do transcription of uh, spoken text, right? Why do we have in courts people that type up court proceedings? Why there are people in the parliament who type up, you know, parliament hearings, uh, like basically make a memo of that? Okay, in our case, there's an excuse for that. Well, our language is special, small and lovely. So, uh, and all the greats of the world don't support it yet. Fine, but we can solve this ourselves. So now we're bringing this in, and we don't need to have people, um, ladies and gentlemen, who to just type up stuff in the court of parliament. This is actually live use case. Again, we say we are more efficient. So. Lots of low-hanging fruit like that, that we're focused on. We haven't chosen a sector. We haven't chosen that our health, our strategy strategies in health or transport. We say no. We try to kickstart um, that experimentation with machine learning and AI throughout the whole government. So it's like a, like a mainstreaming approach, if you wish. And literally taking it to all different parts of government. The way we try to build capacity for that, um, we still go back to our roots a bit. And if I said before that... Um, What has contributed to our digital story has been platform approach. So even if it happened by accident in the past, now it's a conscious effort. And we are taking this also to the AI age. So we are seeing and building up, okay, what are some of the common needs for AI applications, for machine learning applications across the whole government that we could solve as a basic component that can be reused, reapplied in different parts of government? So for example, let's take chatbot. If three different agencies want to build a chatbot, why have they do it three times? Perhaps there's a common component, a common module that can be then retrained uh, with their specifics and they get ahead again faster, cheaper, so forth, like they did in the past with uh, building of services in the first place. And mind you, it works. So we have... Uh, We brought out the first such reusable component in October. We have the next ones coming up. So we're really bringing this platform approach in as a way to speed up AI uptake in our government. And this is clearly one part where there's a lot of space for academic collaboration, international collaboration, because these things don't need to be built by us. We are very big fans in Estonia of copying. If it works somewhere and it can be reapplied in Estonia, we're happy to take it and make it our own. Our digital identity, for example, that was Finnish. And we made it work. So but my point is that so if it works somewhere, happy to copy it. If you know some of the stone AI components can work here, use it. It's out there basically open sourced. So this platform way is what I fundamentally believe is is what allows allow us around the world to go ahead faster, whether it's AI or whatever we're building. And my very last point, I'm probably already over time a bit, <laughs> is to say that what's the big picture for us? When we talk about AI uh, and the direction to AI, then I go back to the fundamental issue that we have had through the years that I mentioned. It's been user experience. So how do we build for better interfaces and better user experience? Uh, so ultimately, as a government, our vision is that, as a government CI office at least, we want to actually get, get out of the game of building up interfaces. Interfaces are wherever you are, basically in your devices, in your car, in your handy, in your fridge, in your TV, whatever, so the job that we see going forward is that we have to just basically play with those device makers with the software makers for those devices so that they can be the channel for you to get information that you need from our government to use the services that we provide as a government so instead of let's say finding our online portal or uh, you know us for example, sending you an email, "Hey, congratulations on a new baby, that can be Siri or Google Assistant or you know. <laughs> Random example, what Audi, <laughs> uh, t- doing the same thing. So ultimately what we are trying to, we came up with the, with the concept paper and we are trying, starting to build this up uh, from proof of concepts is that we envision the world, but virtual assistants around you actually are also the interfaces where you then get served by the government. And there's a lot of work to do on that. It may sound easy, but there's a lot of work also how to make it all interoperable, how to have authentication within uh, virtual assistants, how to make it all available in Estonian language, which is no small feat. Um, but basically, that's the world of envision. That yes, just your handy itself is your key, your gateway to the government, not you somehow downloading an app or going somewhere online or you know getting something done on yourself. So that's where I want to end. Um, very happy to take any kinds of questions and good luck to you as well.
3: always fantastic, inspiring to hear about this Estonian developments. And it's always such a nice story. I mean, what I'm wondering, I mean, we have also done this research on AI in Germany. I mean, automatically you have these negative debates, biases, (laughs) discrimination, regulatory needs, ethical issues. Isn't that a debate in Estonia? Is this so positive as you just described it, that everybody sees the advantages, everybody supports that?
1: Yeah, so the way we look at it, and this goes beyond AI even. I mean, that's, for example, our whole approach to cybersecurity, and has always been, is that you have to take care of the risk side. But, I mean, that shouldn't dominate the story. That shouldn't dominate the narrative. I mean, we, we, we have to be building for the good things while taking care of the bad stuff, if you wish, right? So, I mean, throughout our whole 20 years, we've been very keen and very focused on building up cybersecurity excellence yeah. from how we design systems to how we daily protect them and so forth. We are very strong in data protection, the same reasons for privacy, but, the, but that's the necessary part of being digital. So when it comes to AI as well, yes, we have, let's say, a range of guidelines about how to be responsible in AI development, but... If, if that's the only discourse, then you're to look about, it. okay, why not to do things? We want to rather have a discussion about you know, how to do things as opposed to why we can't. Yeah.
3: Perfect. I mean, I have a lot of questions, but it's it should be your forum please come up with questions just shortly indicate your your que- um, if you're interested to raise a question and when you raise a, when you come with the question please also shortly mention your background so that um, sim knows who you are that would be fantastic I think here was the first question you want to do it like without microphone well, let's try it yeah yeah.
1: Do you need you need workers, Toby? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I can and from Estonia. And um I'm also curious about um, you know the data privacy aspect and is there some
0: kind of um government appointed data protection officer in Estonia um who is healing the conversation on data
1: privacy? Yeah so I guess that's your concrete question, right? <laughs> so um, I guess otherwise speak about privacy aspects in, in long detail, but uh, yes, there, of course there is. We have been, first of all, we are members of European Union the same way, the whole GDPR, the whole spiel applies to us just the same way. But why GDPR adoption for us was no big deal, in public sector at least, it's a different story in private sector, is that we have been very German in our data protection approach all the, through the years. <laughs> so basically learning from the best, if you wish. Um, so, we, of course, yes, there's been uh, the whole institutional arrangement, legal environment, sanctions, I mean, all the way to basically concrete safeguards in each and every service built up, designed into the services, how to make sure that privacy is not violated. But our fundamental idea is, is that um, we shouldn't be protecting people from themselves. And that sometimes perhaps is a difference here, if I'm very blunt in this audience. So basically, people will have to have a choice, but exactly, we don't make the choices for them. So if for, I for take the example of medical health, uh, digital medical health record in our case, um, it's available for the next doctor to see. So, so if the next doctor needs to treat me, they have access to my medical past unless I opt out. So unless I basically make a decision that, okay, I don't want my funky teenage um, disease to be known for the rest of the history. So, but I control this, right? And, 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 but we, and we don't make this control choice for you as a government, so that's perhaps the specific part. Second thing, like I said, we try to design safeguards in, so some of them are procedural, some of them are technological. In health record, you might know this already, um, given your research topic, but, but the way we deal with it is that, so uh, how do we make sure that doctors don't misuse the access to your records? Well, first of all, there's regulation and arrangements at all the hospitals and, and uh, GP practices, they have to have the proper means and mechanisms to make sure that they doctors don't misuse that. But ultimately you also have a way to find out. Because in digital world, there's always a trace, right? Unless you're very sophisticated in hacking, which you know only very few people in the world are. So there's a trace. And trace ends up in a logbook. So we have in our digital um, patient portal, we have made it possible for you to see your logbook about your data, so who, which doctor access to your health file, when and so forth. If you have suspicion that they had no business you can always go back to the data protection office and you know they investigate this. And we have had a few cases in the past where people have been fined for this or, or laid off. So in you know, a long story what I'm saying is, is that we solve this problem in a few levels. Yes, you have to have the whole framework in place, of course. Institutional setups, data protection mechanisms, laws, stuff like that. But there's a lot you can do in service design, in process design, in technological design, to basically make sure that these are effectively um, implemented. And fundamentally, we just exactly believe you have to be able to manage your data. We shouldn't do it for you. Oops. Nice. Now you're going.
3: Um, OK. I think Svenja was here. But I mean, let's start with you first and Svenja. And then I will make a little bit of a list of the next ones.
1: You
0: need AI for that, you? Hi, um, thank you so much for the insightful presentation. I'm Jyoti, I'm actually working for the Singaporean Public Service, uh, but I'm an MP MPa student at Hertie. Um, so my question is, uh, in Singapore at least, we're always thinking about not leaving anyone behind, and as part of the digital government, you do have a lot of strategies, and I'm just curious to know what is the perception of the citizens towards a lot of these um, digital government um, initiatives, even things like AI, and uh, if you could share some of the roadblocks and how do you ensure that you do bring any, everyone along with you and there isn't any form of exclusion? Thank you.
1: Yeah, so um, i start by saying that our approach has been that that's been one of the reasons why we haven't made things mandatory for citizens to be used online. I mean, it starts really from that fact, although it's, I have to say it becomes quite costly to keep the physical options open, right? So if, uh, you know, four percent of uh, tax declarations come on paper, it's still you have to keep the bloody offices open, you know, the whole full cycle, right, for that. It's it's quite costly per transaction. So we have to find ways how to get beyond that. And the solution form, at least from st- strategy point of view, is that's another reason why at least our office, we are pushing to get rid of services. I mean, the best form of this is how to make sure that you're not excluded, well, why should you interact at all, right? Um, at the same time, having said that, we have done quite a lot of work when it comes to skilling of people and sort of you know, making sure that you know, um, they can go to the local library to get assistance and there's connectivity around the country and then the whole thing. It's easier for us because uh, being a small country, it's all in one package. This is all basically my policy portfolio, for example. So, digital government, cybersecurity, connectivity, skilling, all these things are handled in one package that so makes it easier like that. But ultimately, yes, I mean, it goes back to the same thing. We, we'd rather work on this, not to somehow drag people along with us, but rather make it so that they wouldn't have to bother with it at all.
3: Svenja Falk, she's just um, teaching digital transformation with us exactly, at the moment. I
0: quoted your baby ah.
3: quote
0: already. So I, um, my name is Svenja Falk, I work with Accenture and I'm a fellow here. Um, I have uh, one question and one um, comment. The first one is that I really loved loved your statement. It's not about tech, it's not about money, it's about change. So what would be your um, recommendations to Germany where we are more starting from a half-empty glass perspective very often when we look at the equation of technology and change? The second, just a small comment, in China, actually, you can divorce on on WeChat,
1: so maybe there's something you might (laughs) (laughs) want to (laughs) explore. Yeah, well, I understood that these days divorce happens on Facebook. It's a status change, no? <laughs> Not legally speaking, of course. Um, so, well, I don't think we're in the business to give recommendations, but i will I'll be happy to say, I mean, we, we are facing the same problem in Estonia these days, too. I mean, legacy builds up so fast. And I don't mean technological legacy. Tech legacy is, is important but easier to fix in many ways. The hard part is that we get used to working in certain ways, and that's very human, right? So we get tired of change even sometimes, right? If everything keeps changing, although it's a cliche that these days it's not a luxury we can afford, right? We have to be changing all the time. But fundamentally speaking, it's we build up processes, habits, laws, I mean, you know, organizational setups, institutions, and that makes us stuck. So how do we in a way, um, that's that's a lot of what, what what my work as as well revolves around, how to constantly push my colleagues to challenge them on some of those legacies that they have in their processes, in, in their business, so to speak, right? Um, the only sort of mechanism that what we have seen work is two things. But well, first of all, there have to be some sort of incentives. I mean, we're very much believing in incentives in Estonia at least. And both carrots and sticks. Carrots in the sense that, I mean... Uh, For example, sometimes just basically, yes, for example, sometimes even funding or even so a bit of, let's say, additional training or coaching by some office like ours or, you know, Tech for Germany in in Germany here or something like that can actually help along the way, at least those who are willing to make the change. For those who are not willing, it has to be a stick. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Sticks being, for example, the sticks that we use is that we try to use law sometimes to push us to to go to a certain level. So um, if I use the example from the past, once only principle was something we brought in into legislation to push agencies to start sharing data in the back end. So basically, once if you don't know, the once only rule is about that if some part of government knows something about you, the rest of the government should not ask again. You can actually say no to them asking again. Rather, they have to exchange in the back end. That's where X-Road uh, as a platform is handy for that. So this pushes for, C, let's say, integrated services is, is meant to force agencies to redesign how they work, for example. Another stick we use is, uh, is funding. Um, some of the biggest coordination mechanisms we've seen anywhere in the world is that some control of funding uh, for, let's say, CI offices or, or some sort of coordination units. In our case, this means that... Um, We have a central digital fund. So whenever agencies want to build or rebuild their solutions, they come to our office to to apply for funding. So our condition is that you can't rebuild let's say you can't be adding next features to systems that are more than ten years old. We don't fund you. But we will fund you to completely remake them, for example. And it's not about just systems, it's also processes. I mean, so basically longer, so we force you to not get stuck in legacy in some ways.
3: Maybe to add a question on that, I mean, what can we learn for Germany? We have done several surveys here in Germany, and one of the key challenges government officials usually tell us is how to find the right people working on digital skills or who have the digital skills who can work on this topic. And I've read, I mean, you also face these challenges. I mean, we have a very competitive labour market. I mean, if I am a tech person, I prefer to go to some better-paying non-governmental or private sector. So, how do you get these top people? Into government, in what's your approach in Estonia, um, in this very competitive labour market?
1: Yeah. So I think the two things there. Um, I don't have a perfect answer, but but first of all, we don't. We are quite honest to ourselves there. We don't play for the best ones.
2: <laughs>
1: but so we don't have to have the really the best ones in the government. But we have to create, make it this way that we can work with the best ones that are out there elsewhere. So that's why we've been relying so much on private industry. Guys like exactly Tavi and Nortal, uh, sorry to keep bringing you up. You're the only Estonian here, I guess, (laughs) unless there's someone else. Um, So, yes, that's why we've been working with private industry for all those 20 years, right? So we don't have to have them on our payroll, but we can still work with them basically in partnership to build up these things, right? And they can then, um, you know, at the same time, take this experience to other countries or other sectors. Second thing... um, We are quite small as a community, so we um, try to increase our chances by hitting some people at a good spot of their career. For example, so if somebody's making an exit, a successful exit from a startup company, and if it happens with golden hand shackles, right? Well, we might approach and say, hey, well, you can't be working in the industry for the next year or two anyway, come work with us for a bit. So it, it, a lot of it is our sort of solution, but mind you, we are so much smaller than Germany, is that we try to basically keep a finger, in, you know, like in, tapped into the community and attract you with a mission. So, and we don't, we, we never have the ambition that we will attract you for life. We're happy if you come for a year, two, three, you leave your mark, good people do it quite instantly, and, you know, you move on, but we have also moved on with you.
3: Perfect. Thank you. Any further, I mean, I know there are many. Um, <clears throat> maybe somebody can help a little bit prioritize. It's, it's, let's go for you first, and then I move a little bit. Uh, i working as a
0: consultant for change projects. And I'm a bit surprised that you see so many advantages in being Estonia because of the, the economy of scale. It should be easier for bigger countries to build something like that. So what are the advantages you have in building
1: such a project? Speed. And so basically um although if if you go if you would be a Estonian, you would say that we are too slow, yeah. which we still are, we should be way way faster, but I mean ultimately I see a lot of it is a, is a speed game I mean um, if I somehow philosophize a bit, I think the sort of more and more competitive advantage these days is also built around speed i mean between a, let's say competition of economies, for example right um, so whoever and that's the same in governments who's able to change faster in some ways can have a bit of advantage in terms of how the business environment develops or, or so forth. So, so the advantage I see is speed. Secondly, um, the way at least we understand and look at the world of technology, it's going smaller and smaller in terms of what is the unit of, that you build. Big chunk systems are too clumsy, too complicated, fail. Usually these pro- projects fail miserably, go over budget over time, stuff like that. Build small. You actually build for better, uh, you know, assurance that it will work. So, so that's the advantage of the sea. And even, even if you have to build up big things, the next tax or rebuild our tax system or whatever like that, we haven't pushed that. Okay, let's. We have to do it more modularly. We have to move forward. You know, th- this, this, this is the only way we can handle this. Each time we have failed in Estonia, we have made things too big, basically, and we have had miserable failures in in this regard.
3: Thank you. Next questions. Okay, let's go here. And I moved just to the more to the right, yeah. So sorry? Yep. Oh, yeah? Oh yeah. Hello, I'm Jacob, uh I'm from Um uh-huh.
1: I can only give you a very general answer, right? Because I mean, it also depends. It also depends. I mean, what is, what is the type of platform we're talking about? I mean, our intent, our direction is smaller and smaller in many ways. And also because I mean, that's the, that's the way we see that uh, probably like private industry is also going more and more for to be product based, right? Uh, small startups coming up with them, very niche-specific solutions, right? Often, often as a service and stuff like that. So, if, if we want to, for example, play with them and have their talent with us, we also have to be able to take the small things, smaller and smaller things, and plug them into bigger picture, bigger sort of setup of ours. So, in a complicated way, what I'm trying to say it depends on what is the platform we're talking about. But, but our intent, our direction is to basically, you know, you know, break them down smaller and smaller all the time if we can.
3: Perfect, yep, please, if waiting.
1: So the last one we are hoping to get to. So we, don't, we are not that far yet. This is rather exactly what we see as the necessary direction and the, the vision ahead that we would be using the, them as a platform to offer the services that we, we, we need to offer. Um, so that part of the problem will come in the future. <laughs> but otherwise... Um, we don't work specially or differently with the platforms than I guess the rest of governments do, at least in Europe. Also because, well, the obligations of platforms, the way we, uh, you f- you know, they have to fight disinformation and, and ensure IP and whatever, it's the same around the Europe. So I don't have like, a good answer to you. I mean, it's, it's, we do nothing special like that. It's the same rules, same framework, same access that all the governments have, at least in European single market. So, so yeah, nothing too special in, in this sense, in this regard we um if we shift around, I think our thinking more and more goes these days around. So how do we positively use them also as a as a, as a communication platform to push our version of the story and our messages and our communication part, but we are still only starting in this sense, yep Thank
3: you, Thank you next step. So, um, no,
1: Well, for the first question I have to say come visit. <laughs> um but um I think the stuff we can talk about here is is um well, it's the same sort of we don't see defence as too special in, in certain sense. I mean a lot of the back office stuff, though you know, how to, how do you run defence force? I mean it's the same as any other agency, right? Yes, it comes with its own sort of uh information security, special needs, but fundamentally, you know, you have to somehow handle communications, you have to somehow handle, uh, you know, process flows, data flows, whatever, right? I mean, so, again, I'm not giving you too good of an answer in, in this sense. We haven't, the only special things we have built up perhaps is that we have also looked at places where citizens come across defense area and how to digitize those interactions. So, for example, if you call to serve, we have a conscription, we have a mandatory service. So, how to handle that, you know, for young guys and girls. So, again, there's digital options built for that. So, so we, we, perhaps that's a bit more special in our sense. I think the rest of the stuff, yeah, you have to visit, and we have to talk at a different level. Um, For us, Russia is not an elephant in the room. I mean, um, first of all, they've been always there. Second, there's no escape from them or anyone else. I mean, in a digital space, I mean, we fundamentally believe that, I mean, no country is an island or, I mean, you know... China, Russia, um, Iran, North Korea— whoever you want to have in this list, in a way, is your target just as much as we are. In many ways, I mean, any country can be. So it comes down to that. I mean, we all have to have the proper defenses up and running. And so, whether it's whoever is the enemy, in many ways, I mean, we have to basically f- defend against them. They can be internal as well. So, my long story short, we don't like specially work you know with any country in mind. We we work with keeping our you know our data safe. That's that's the mindset from whoever is an intruder, whoever wants to hack, whoever wants to uh, you know run us down or bomb us down in terms of you know uh, denial of service attack, whatever. So yeah, it's uh, we don't do anything special in that sense necessarily. foundation, or is it a government agency? Uh, is it a government-owned enterprise? Mm-hmm. Um, you said we released, I don't know, the chatbot, for example. Mm-hmm. But how is the value chain actually distributed? More government, public-private partnerships, the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, who makes strategic decisions? Who sets technical standards? Who develops solutions? Who operates them? I mean, who runs your services?
3: <laughs> The next half an hour, <laughs> <laughs> but good no, questions. I, I I'll try to be
1: really try to be shorter. <laughs> um, so, in short, there's a lot of variety in all of this, but I'll try to somehow describe the mean or the median sort of version of that. Okay, so um, in a, in a short version, it's this way. Um, us in the government, we want to be good at one thing at least. And that is, you know, we have to be able to make the decisions what we need, right? And how does it play together architecturally, for example? So the business, being a business owner, being a service owner, or the product owner is what we have to do, as well as in sort of, you know, the architecture. So how does it all sort of work together on a whole of government level or within a ministry domain, for example, or agency domain? Um, we mostly, with a very few exceptions, at least so far, uh, buy in the building of of next solutions or new solutions or upgrading them. So let's say coding and infrastructure or uh, hardware, this all comes from private sector. So we literally, our challenge and it's not an easy thing is to be a smart buyer in that sense. But work actually has been done and and that's where the talent collaboration comes in by private vendors. Um, There aren't at this point any like like middle or public private partnership, or these sort of let quasi governmental solutions let 's say the foundation that you brought out, for example, this is a very specific one. They are um, consolidated buyer when it comes to or coordinated when it comes to government communications, very specific niche task essentially it 's a government agency which just basically you know goes in and procures these services from the market um, most of the time once things are built up, we take over running them, so we we usually keep um, you know the, the the constant service up uh, upkeeping we keep that in the government uh, again there are a few exceptions where we have you know fully outsourced but this is usually the, the non sensitive stuff uh, and and of course our private sector would like us to more buy the wholesale from uh, there we might partially move in that direction same time we might do something more in house in the future especially as the more that sort of devops concept and these things take hold so it's a thing in flux as well but at least that's the median picture sort of as it is today, across the, looking across the government. We have um, government IT agencies, but they are, how to say, they are supposed to be exactly the agencies or the shops for all different ministries who handle their IT in terms of you know, architecture, uh, tendering and procurement, as well as then the upkeep of systems. So they are specialized in these tasks. They have very few coders, for example, so far, with very few exceptions, yeah.
3: Thank you. I mean, you have a follow-up question? I mean, short one, yeah.
1: So, so that, that's why I say it's a thing in flux. I think uh, we also have to rethink our model, and there's a lot of debate going on about that at home. About sort of you know, we, but we haven't made like the, like choices really yet. My own take is that in one way, as I said, I mean we might need to bring some things more in-house. Basically, we we have to make a very clear distinction, and that's the hard part about what is the business of IT, or let's say what is what are the systems or services we really have to have a hand on for security, for example, reasons, and what not. And we have to be very honest that most of the things we actually shouldn't have our hand on. GDPR and other things, I mean, they have, apply in private sector the same way. We just have to have proper you know, oversight and, and sort of safeguards in place. So we shouldn't like overthink that government. We are so special, but there are really some things where we are special. And we have to be very smart in differentiating between them, if that makes sense. <laughs> Well, he said it. Yeah. Um, as far I, as I understood, you also face a lot of challenges with like, creating technology in Estonia and not um, getting it from abroad. So I was wondering how much of a challenge this really is. Um,
2: and yeah, what would you do about it? Because I think also, also Germany can't do without technology from abroad.
1: So. We, we've been rarely inventing things. There's very few things that are, let's say, intimately Estonian all the way to, I don't know, core algorithms and things, right? Um, but most of it is um, there's a lot of open source, open standards, open components, stuff like that, that have been integrated in a smart way. Uh, so a lot of tech as such comes from somewhere else in the world and I think that's okay it it depends on just that you know we have to work with partners who understand what they're doing and you know what is it that they're employing and how who basically then put it together as as a package for us in the right way or we have to do the packaging ourselves which again goes to the story of you know DevOps and going more micro in our sort of setup or microservice based in our setup Um, the other thing I would bring out is that um, so we, we are not afraid, necessarily, if stuff comes from elsewhere, and even if it's open source. We in very, very many ways see that that's a way to have more secure solutions even than we would be able to build up ourselves. What are the chances that we will have the best crypto guys in Estonia, in the world? Well, Quite small, if it 's basically something that where we can rely on global open source community, it comes with its own risks. but you know if we manage them, then uh, you know we have a better shot at having a more secure solution in the end. So we have to compromise in this we have to be realistic in terms of what we can rely on. We are no way like can be protectionistic and afford to be protectionist protectionist in this sense um, and my last bit is and of our our challenge what I highlighted out. Is customization for our language, and that we don't see that anyone else can solve because we're just so small that we are not in the, you know, we don't meet any business case criteria for the big companies of the world. We and that's why we've been investing into relevant research that is then available for everyone in the everyone in the world to use in their products. So that's the way we foresee, for example, with you know, series and Google's and others of the world that we give them the core language tools that then they perhaps can employ in their devices and services. So the language is our special challenge, like that. Yeah, no, we we still have those challenges, but but it's not the issue of private partners that much. It's more the issue that is, you know, are we smart enough to, you know, work with them like that, and and are we smart enough to procure it from them? So uh, I see that more of a challenge for our public sector colleagues. Um, so I wouldn't, yeah, put 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 the finger or the blame on on our partners in this sense. We have to be up for that game, and then we can sort of, you know, basically say, okay. Well, I'll be honest with you, we are learning the ropes there. So, um, and, but most of the issue, we have good examples how it's been done. Most of the issue is, is, not, is like an in an intent. Okay? So most of the issue is with lawyers in government. So uh, the, the ones we have to convince, or let's say the agencies have to convince, is not the techies. It's not the even the senior officials. It's basically the lawyers who uh, try, you know, have their veto on what ends up being a tender document or what ends up in the contract. So these are the guys we try to get to these days and have them understand what are different options in terms of, let's say, what are the different. I mean, our our European Union public uh, tendering or procurement framework is is quite vast. Quite it has a range of menu of options that you can choose. But oftentimes it's just legally more comfortable to go with the form of, and type of tendering you're always used to, which is, you know, it's especially bad if you just go for the price. Uh, a milder version is if you just basically somehow make a very simple process, classic beat stuff, but that's, you know, that's dynamic offering, that's, you know, uh, innovation tendering. I mean, there's so many other options you can use where you get what you have in mind. So we're trying to expand the understanding of what are the, what are the options on the plate for tendering for agencies and to basically educate them a bit in that sense. We'll see if it works, is is my honest answer. Yeah. We are starting to. So, some of our earlier use cases actually are around sort of pattern detection from data. So, uh, so how do we, you know, can we somehow have inferences that you know otherwise uh, we wouldn't hypotheses that we wouldn't otherwise have? Um, there is some playing happening now in uh, general education, which is uh, I think a bit different than you have in mind, but still. So, can we somehow? Uh, can we somehow build up advisory for students or for teachers to to guide the students along the learning uh, journey? Um, the stuff that has been done with uh, pattern detection in uh, unemployment offices of ours in terms of how do you match for example a job seeker with um, postings or how do you suggest what sort of trainings what sort of level for which sort of job seeker for example so there 's some beginnings of of these different things but it 's um, as I said before I mean most of the stuff is experimentation and but even even the first experiments actually see that there 's quite a lot more there so it 's uh, you know we try to pick up the pace and try more is is the honest answer, but we are very early in in that sense.
3: This is also a question I have, how do you, I mean there are so many directions to go, how to prioritise, I mean this is a big issue here in Germany also, what should be the key starting points, who decides on what priorities you take up, um, what comes later? But that's exactly, Because you can't do all these things yeah. parallel. I mean.
1: um, well, to a degree, you can. And I think that's been exactly our conscious. Sort of, I mean, that was a choice of strategy. So that we don't prioritize. We'd rather try to infiltrate as wide as we can to get the agencies going. I mean, in a way, to build up a practice of even thinking about, uh, OK, what can you know, machine learning or AI give me? So, I mean, if, if I have all this range of problems in my agency, is there any fit for what machines could do? I mean, sometimes it's, you know, uh, I want to I say simple. An easier use case, like you know, just pattern detection from data. Sometimes it's uh, how to automate like some interaction in away. So we we don't prioritize. I mean, we want them to try it out. Whatever it is it that they see fit in terms of trying out. We um, the way we do it is that we through the last year we've. Uh, Covered almost the whole of public sector with um, evangelism and like ideation sessions and uh, doing like different formats with together with private sector as well and academic folks in terms of uh, getting them to come up with proposals for proofs of concept. And then the one, and then they prioritize per agencies so in terms of let's say what seems more business value for them, more more you know what gives them more policy output or more service uh, benefit or whatever. So we don't infiltrate, it, but that's a conscious choice. That's a conscious choice to basically start a movement, start building a critical mass of ex- expertise or experience, and then at some point perhaps the issue of prioritization comes. Our priority from centrally is the platforms. Okay. So to okay, so which which are the most commonly Needed or useful components that then can be reused across the whole of you know white government. Yeah. Perfect.
3: I think um yeah. yeah. So Markus Beck, I'm an FF student. I work for an international organisation in Geneva. All right.
1: And uh, work a lot with uh, low income. There's that, a big choice. And, uh, <laughs> and low income countries. And I was wondering.
2: I mean, uh, I wanted to broaden that scope a little bit, not only talk about Germany and Estonia. And uh, I was wondering. Um, you know, uh, the, let's, let's take the electronic ID, which could be a game changer for, for some of these uh, uh, countries because they have no clue how many people live uh, where and uh, lose completely track of, of, of people. And I work in public health, so also this whole integration uh, would, would be a dream in the future to get better data quality. But uh, I was wondering uh, how you see Estonia's uh, role or role model or best case uh, to be able to be Exported, or what are your sort of efforts on on advocating for that and and twinning with some of the uh, other countries that could benefit from from such advancements?
1: No, it's an excellent question. So, um, we, when I say we now, then I mean uh, Estonian experts and companies mostly, they have done work in some hundred plus countries around the world. Sometimes it's training. Sometimes it's some sort of knowledge transfer. Sometimes it's consultancy. Sometimes it's uh, building up concrete solutions and you know digital systems in countries. So very much varies. Um, I'll be honest here. The issue there is that our small size, of course, right. So I mean, usually it has to be some sort of partnership. Some, you know, we we're happy to provide whatever sort of know-how and and solutions we be, we've been gaining as a government or, or in private sector working with us, right. But usually we need to something you know for customization. Otherwise, partner with somebody locally, right not always but sometimes Um, and the reason is that you might know this anyway but a lot of the stuff in government is not immediately transplantable right context differs language differs whatever i mean at least some level of customization will be necessary governance levels differ mechanisms differ uh, whatever Um, so but you can still take principles you can still take the experience of reform so or, or redesign of processes and you know simplification sort of efforts at least, for example, and see if that can be transplanted elsewhere so we we have daily um, i think more than five delegations around the world in Thailand uh, let 's see less now with Corona. But uh, some are trying to learn this experience and uh, some of them are from international organizations, some of them are other countries, some of them are other, um, let's say, private sectors from other countries, whatever. Trying to somehow distill this and then take it back and it may not be, let's say, Estonian thing, but at least they still benefit from at least bits and pieces of this experience. Uh, Yeah, Corona. (laughs) So my, my long story short is that so we 've been trying to promote this we've been happy to share we as I said, I mean we have daily delegations coming in we were happy to always sort of you know share what we have learned also because we have learned so much from others. We have copied so much from others. Our identity that was finished as I said before um, same ways today is we take up practices from elsewhere. I mentioned the unemployment uh, model where we you know, were uh, matching job seekers and, uh, and postings that was Dutch. We took the core model um, from the Netherlands, retrained it with our data. Works beautifully now for us as well, right? So, if, if something like that can be done between the countries, that's a sweet spot. But it's not as often. Mostly, what you can do is actually take our experience and then, based on that, modify it for the next next country or next case like that. And that's um, quite labor-intensive. But again, at least we can be the knowledge partner in that. <laughs>
0: So my name is Karen Vega. I am from Fireware Foundation, and we work with uh, um, open source standards, and we have platforms that are open source. Um, my question. So it's great to hear that you are um, working already with open source components, and we can talk more about that later. Um, my my um, question was on the um, seeing your example on agriculture that you mentioned here. It made me think about the potential that you have to identify. <clears throat> Corruption issues, for example, illegal mining, illegal tree um, depletion. I am from Latin America, so I'm from Peru. So we have a part of the Amazon in Brazil. And I was just reflecting on that. And if you could comment on maybe transparency issues and how there are people who don't want to be watched because they are actually not doing um, legal things. So maybe there's, I don't know, you could comment on that. Thank you.
1: No, no, but I think you rightly said, I mean, um, data is a great transparency tool, data in whatever form. I mean, if it's satellite imagery, like in in the scenario that you provided otherwise, we have said it differently in Estonia that, I mean, for us, I'm not ashamed to say that in the, let's say when we came from the Soviet Union background, um, uh, installing rule of law and basically getting rid of corruption, everything was a big part of this change, we did it quite fast and effectively and among many other things was basically quite... Uh, strong move towards transparency based on data that is why, for example, in Estonia, you know uh, ownership data uh, is public so let's say well, if you can go online and check what companies I have or what real estate I have and stuff like that and it 's a simpler form of what what you were asking me about it's but it's the same idea that if we if we have this data, we can use it for great purposes to root out bad behaviour right i mean be it corruption or otherwise so I can you know if that's the comment you were seeking for, I can only wholeheartedly support it's a, it's an awesome tool. And that's where the tough part is for some governments, of course, <laughs> is that, I mean, if governments themselves don't want to get rid of those practices, then you have a problem. Yeah. But then again, and this is a very fundamental point, I also understand that these things what we have built up don't work in a context where there is no rule of law. Ultimately, it's built for democratic societies, where rule of law is upheld all the way to courts, of course, right? So, so that's a premise, that we have to, in a way, accept. But at least in Estonia, that's the way we envision the world should be like anyway, sorry. Only just one comment. I think you said the main thing. I mean, at least that's the idea. There's, a, there's a, at least a chance of having more competition uh, in terms of partners. But um, I was asked before about the size issue, and I think. But here we have to be quite frank that I mean, you know, so it's a size game. Obviously, if you, if you still have a small community, let's say, of tech industry, uh, then uh, even if you somehow try to maximise being open source and otherwise, that doesn't mean that you will end up with too many vendors. <laughs> Because, I mean, they they still specialize, and that's okay. So so in a bigger market, like here, I would imagine it would be even bigger benefit in terms of what you describe. But the fact that we may not get more vendors doesn't mean that we shouldn't be open source, for example, if we can. And I also want to say one thing. We are not open source 100%. We go for the solution that works the best for the price. But often that means it's built with open source uh, stack solution standards and stuff like that. So it's not a principle that we somehow say that it has to be, but often ends up being one.
3: Right. Okay. I'm already looking a little bit at the time. I would suggest to collect three more questions and then somehow give a final word to, to Sim because we have to look a little bit on the schedule. I mean, I think you have been waiting longer. A second question and then... Okay, the Estonian colleague, I think. um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest with you, we haven't targeted too specially uh, and there's a reason for that so as our tech community is quite small and i mean it doesn't just take an average citizen to come up with an application based even on open data right if that was as I understood the heart of your question was Sorry, come up with the tech itself. yeah okay so so my, so so i'll I'll get there as well then okay so um, in terms of um Opening it up for development, so we've done the basic stuff, for example, yes, I mean, open data has to be there and so forth, but we don't bank on this, we don't rely on this to be the source, how we get new applications, right? So that's one thing, and that's because quite frankly, I mean, everybody who's good at tech is employed in Estonia, and employed full time and more, so I mean, it's not a realistic resource we have, and also the way that I look at it, I'm sorry if I'm blunt here, um, a lot of open data effort in governments around the world has been for the reasons that they don't get their act together themselves otherwise, so that's the best shot at building up good services. And that's okay if, if that works. So, But for us, that's not a realistic option. We have to do the work ourselves. Uh, in terms of engagement, which was m- more widely, um, we have covered the basic things, but I have to say we are not the front runner globally in this regard. And I think this goes more to the governance mechanisms and the political will than the technical tools for that. So we covered all the good basics. I mean, all the, you know, Good governance practices are there, all the way to like our cabinet materials are immediately available real time if decisions are made. You have the whole uh, legal making process, you know. Uh, that you can follow online all the way from when drafts are initiated to when it becomes a law in parliament for example and you can you know step in and have your say and I mean this like simple I would say simple means have been built in but we don't have, we haven't moved beyond that it's not like we have built up directive democracy or anything like that but again that's a choice of politics and of governance in the country so we had just you know there the hasn't been readiness to go that far if you wish in, in a political sense
3: I mean, we have done research on this Aurora case. And I mean, it really is AI-based should be AI will decide what services will be offered to citizens in the future. And I mean, this is really something should that machine be doing, I mean, based on algorithms behind. And I think this is a direction which... Do you reflect on that? Is this yeah. um, critically debated?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I wouldn't make it an AI thing immediately even. I mean, this, the same thing comes with automating even more simply, right? Automating just process flows even without any sort of learning and sort of black box sort of uh, fear there, right? Uh, but I'll start a bit wider and then i come back to your point. If I somehow make, this may sound like a bad joke to you, but for students it actually makes sense. Um, we come from a past where government knew anything, everything anyway. So that's not different. <laughs> Except that we had no say in it before. And it wasn't even our government. So uh, we had no say even in who is in the government. So, and I think, you know, as I said, it may sound a bad joke here, but for us it's fundamental. And that's why I go back to the rule of law. I mean, uh, this government, we should be able to trust, it's ours. Okay? And I mean, it's, it may sound cliche or cynical to you, but fundamentally this is what it comes down to. We have a control at least to some level, what happens there right? and that 's a whole of difference compared to our past. so I would discount the, the past comparison in, in that sense. Uh, secondly, I think we have to be realistic here about you know, what is it that we 're talking about here? Um, if I talk about that the data being available for the next agency, for example, then fundamentally that data will be available for them anyway, but the thing is that they will ask you again and again and again and again. And you will give them if you want the service. So, fundamentally, why we should make it harder for you? So, we might as well make that data available for them and you basically have less of a hassle and less of a burden. And most of the things we're talking about in that sense, I mean, is bureaucracy like that, right? Most of the things that are called services and interactions with the government. And obviously, if you go deeper, if we go deeper into public service, when we talk about you know, profiling risk children and stuff like that, that's a whole different story and level. But we shouldn't mix all different services into one bundle, but rather exactly look at them. What is the exact thing we are you know, talking about? What is the exact that we are trying to automate? Uh, what are the risks of that, if at all? For example, so I hope it makes sense. So, so we shouldn't basically bundle everything as a public service into one, but rather sort of you know slice it up quite a bit more. Is, is our thinking at least, and that's the same thing with AI. So, what's the hurt if um, if a wrong person gets the maternity benefit? Yeah, I mean there's a bit of hassle involved, but fundamentally speaking, that's not as bad as for example we we profile and target the wrong person for, I don't know, criminality or whatever, right? So again we should like have a different approach in terms of the sensitivity and sort of what safeguards we build in. What is we we think quite a bit about what sort of conditions you would have to meet to automate a certain service, depending again what is what is what is really the impact for people's well being of that particular service. Uh, for the rest of their life for example. In health, for example, we may be more careful, right? As opposed to um social service or social benefit provision, for example. So so that's how we sort of try to tackle this issue if i if I just very shortly answer you. And um and I, I, I want to say one more thing on in this regard. Um, what we will all have a trouble with, and obviously I come from like technology optimist side, right, as you understand is that uh, we shouldn't somehow give people special credit as opposed to machines. I mean, we have lots of evidence already where sort of basically computers, AI if you wish, is more precise than people are. But we still somehow don't trust the machines, but we trust those people. So, whether it's you know, basically machines detecting uh, lung cancer, for example, and stuff like that, if we have actual evidence, I mean, through studies, if we do, and we do, uh, that you know, computers are getting better at this than people ever can be, why we somehow have a special relation to uh, the machine making this decision? Because people make more errors in this anyways. So this is my point of saying I'm pushing you a bit with with this idea. But my point is that uh, we shouldn't be afraid of machines. We should be afraid of wrong decisions, whether done by machines or people. And that's what we have to have proper safeguards in. And greatly, you know, AI and machines can augment us, can complement us as people to do better judgments and, 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 and jobs. And where those decisions may not have too much of an impact, why stay in this game? Let's rather focus our efforts as public sectors in places and in services where our impact is crucial for people we handle, and there we have to be careful. The rest of the stuff, we can automate away.
3: And the last question, and I'm really sorry that we couldn't accept more questions, but really.
1: Well, un- until Tavi, Tavi comes there, then uh, <laughs> I can say immediately that uh, we are very easily findable online, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so if you still had questions we didn't get to, just you know, find me on Twitter, email, whatever, um, shoot it up afterwards. Sure,
2: so I, I think when Hemingway was still alive, and- Quite probably drunk uh,
1: he said that there's an Estonian in
2: every port in the world and when he would be alive today he would say that there's an Estonian in every digital forum or digital seminar um, that's nice to see. Um, um, having tried and, and in some cases succeeded to take this Estonian experience to Germany for four years now a couple of comments uh, it's extremely difficult uh, and there was a question here really good about the cost and the benefit where in a, in a larger economy, larger bureaucracy, you would have much more benefit from from doing those things. Uh, and uh, of course, the reason why I'm here is that we see this massive opportunity, and it's true. But on the other side, there's uh, this massive uh, reorganization cost, massive resistance from the bureaucracy. It's it's huge, uh, and and. Uh, some of our most successful cases have been in healthcare where, you know, Jan Spahn has been really pushing the agenda. And, and we see that uh, from his leadership, I mean, he's changing the teams. Uh, and, and we see that there's a different way of breeding in those uh, agencies. I'm sorry for the other federal ministries. I uh, haven't spoken to all of them. Uh, but but I think that, uh, you know, there is this massive cost and we cannot uh, discount this. Uh, so so there is an inherent resistance to, to change. And, and uh, you need also, in addition to other things, this kind of like top-level leadership
1: to help people cross the road in a way. But if I can pick up on that, then um, to continue, then the cost to me isn't always an interesting thing because, and the, and here, perhaps I mean I would leave you with a thought. Um, what's what's always been puzzling with me in Germany, if I can say it like that, is that. Uh, why this cost seems so large? And I, I think my answer is in, in the premise that we I set about Estonia. We have had a burning platform and we still do in terms of efficiency. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we, for us, there's no other option but to go deeper and deeper because otherwise we, we don't afford the government we have. Um, perhaps that's different here. So, basically, what I'm just trying to say is that for us, the cost of making those changes is something that if we don't make this cost, well, we lose out. Somewhere else, so it's it's the cost-benefit thing. Essentially, it's, it's perhaps a different calculus for us. And secondly, leadership leadership-wise, um, I think yeah, it's always spot on. We have had enormous luck. We've been just blessed in that sense with uh, leaders who've been willing to take risks. And that's exactly you. She left. You pointed out. She pointed out that one uh, of my last slides was to say that it's not about tech. It's it's about change. Change is about leadership. Driving change through and sort of basically making sure it sticks. Right. Uh, technology is the same everywhere. You guys have better tech than we will ever have in Estonia. <laughs> but how we use it is what makes a difference, right? How deep we change our habits, our organizations, our, our services with the technology is what makes a difference. Our luck has been that our leadership has been willing to try this, has been willing to allow officials like me and my colleagues to play with the technology, even if we sometimes don't know if it will work or what risks it brings. And basically to say, if we make the experiment small and, and not harmful, then you know, play with, try with, if it works perfectly, we'll scale it. That's how online voting started. That's how e-residency started. I mean, these things would not be there if we hadn't had leadership willing to support us trying out some novel approach with the help of technology.
3: Wonderful. I think that was a perfect concluding of of, of this debate. And I think it's really, you raised, it's a puzzle, it's a question. So the debate will continue. And I thought it was wonderful how many topics and different issues we touched today. For me, it's something like the design for a next course or several courses here at the Hurt School. So that was a wonderful um, stimulation for all of us. Thanks a lot for sharing so openly also, I mean, you also talked about difficulties, challenges, problems you're facing. I think this is also what we need more a debate, being aware about this challenge, open to discuss about that, learn from this and This was fantastic to have you here. I hope this was just the start of these debates and that we will have you back somewhere in the future on the next step of AI or whatever comes next.
1: (laughs) We are looking forward. As a digital twin, no, thanks for having me. And uh, vielen dank für Sie. Basically, as I said before, find me online. If there's still stuff there, we're always happy to share. And uh, once this virus thing is over, come visit. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening.
0: You can find more on our website at hurdy-school.org.